So today I am joined by Jonathan Hilpert and Gwen Marchand, who are going to talk to me about their 2018 article in Educational Psychologist entitled Complex Systems Research in Educational Psychology, Aligning Theory and Method. Uh, Dr. Jonathan Hilpert is an Associate Professor of Educational Psychology and Learning Analytics in the Department of Educational Psychology and Higher Education at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas. He is the current Director of the Office of Learning Analytics housed in the College of Education. His research interests include student motivation, engagement, and interactive learning, complex, dynamic, and emergent properties of educational systems, and knowledge construction of complex scientific phenomena. His research on student learning has been funded by the National Science Foundation, as well as several internally funded research awards. Dr. Gwen Marchand is also an associate professor in the Department of Educational Psychology and Higher Education at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas, and she is the director of the UNLV Center for Research, Evaluation, and Assessment. Her areas of research include classroom systems of academic motivation and engagement, student mobility, collaborative team processes, and research and evaluation methods. Gwen is currently funded by a grant awarded through the National Science Foundation that is focused on supporting science motivation and engagement during middle school. Gwen and John, thanks so much for joining me today. Thanks for having us on. We really appreciate what you do with these podcasts. Uh, well, it's a, a pleasure to talk to you. So uh, your article is fascinating, and I will be frank, it's a, it covered a lot of things that I'm not super familiar with, so I was really grateful to have a chance to you know, read it really carefully. Um, can you give us just a, a brief summary of the main focus of your article? Yeah, sure. So one of the things that we noticed in the educational psychology literature was there's a lot of mention of complex phenomena. But what we thought was missing was a sort of way of thinking or a philosophical approach that would help people to model and research that complex phenomena that comes up in theory. A lot of the models that are dominant in educational psychology are what we consider to be component dominant, right? And so what we were looking for was a kind of way of thinking about research that would allow us to model complex phenomena in ways that are useful for educational psychologists. So what we kind of tried to develop was an ontology of thinking about models that stands between theory and method that can allow people to make different choices about their analytical techniques so that they can make inferences about complex phenomena. So there, there's a ton to unpack there, uh, and, and I'm excited to do that. So let's start with what I think is one of the bolder claims in your article, and that's that educational psychology theories presume these complex systems, but researchers often don't test them in ways that would kind of acknowledge or account for that complexity. Um, can you unpack that a little bit for us and help us understand what you mean by that? So many of the phenomena that we study in educational psychology and the theories that guide that work, when we take a look at them, there are many constructs that kind of operate within people or operate between people. And theoretically, when we put them together, you see people using terms like these macro level phenomena emerge from the interactions amongst these other constructs. So we see that, for example, in student engagement um, that I study, we have these different dimensions. The dimensions have multiple elements to them. And when you put them together, we get some sort of property that changes and emerges over time that is not necessarily one that we might be able to reduce in a perfect way to each specific construct. So we'll, we see words that would suggest complexity types of thought with respect to our phenomena, but we don't necessarily see that translate um, in research questions or in the methods. So, so 
and different people have written about um, this type of orientation to um, educational psychology phenomena that would lead us to think that that is sort of a, an assumption that underlies many of our theories. You know, Jeff, when we when we set out to write this paper, one of the things that we considered was going through, you know, a lot of the dominant educational psychological theories and then trying to kind of find places where words like complexity or emergence were mentioned. And so we started reviewing a lot of those theories as a kind of maybe an approach or a section to put into the manuscript, and it got to be too weighty. I mean, it, it was it was to the point where we were finding so many instances where words like complexity and emergence were used that it was kind of a fool's errand to go through and try to document all of that in the predominant theories in educational psychology, which is kind of what led us to start thinking about a different way of orienting the paper for researchers. And that's where we kind of started struggling with like epistemology and ontology. And then, you know, we talked a lot about epistemology and ontology at the beginnings of trying to write the manuscript. And we sort of thought, well, maybe epistemology isn't the right place to start because educational psychologists have certainly adopted this idea that knowledge is flexible and changing and and dynamic, but it doesn't seem to have maybe made an impact on the kinds of research methods or analytical techniques that gets used. So then we started thinking about the ontology of models and we read several foundational papers and that kind of, I guess, gave us the angle that we wanted to take for the paper where we decided we really want to focus in on the kind of ontology of the conceptual models that educational psychologists used to frame their research with the idea that you translate theory into a conceptual model and then that conceptual model has certain properties that represent how somebody might think about the nature of reality. And then that gets translated into kind of a statistical model and research methods are designed. We started to see that most of the conceptual models that people utilize to frame their research take the sort of complex and dynamic and emergent properties of the theory and strip it out and turn it into a kind of causal left to right model that is component dominant as opposed to interaction dominant, where the focus is on, you know, looking at higher low levels of particular components or to sort of, you know, model a set of relationships between variables where the role and the strength and the direction is consistent. Whereas in complex systems research, the role and the strength and the direction of the relationships between variables changes. And so that's what we mean by interaction dominant, where we're kind of looking for an ontology of a conceptual model that allows a lot more flexibility in thinking about the nature of the relationships between the components that we, um, or latent contracts that we study in educational psychology. So, so that makes sense to me. And uh, the way I think about it, and you tell me if I'm off base here, is but um, I'm reminded of the quote by Williams Wordsworth, right? Like, we murder to dissect. I think, you know, we, we talk about students in classrooms, and Gwen, you were talking about, like, motivation is a great example. Um, we think about student motivation or engagement, and we think, wow, it's really complicated, and there's all these factors, and it can change from day to day or moment to moment, and context really matters. Then we go, well but I created this model and there's four boxes and I've got three arrows and, you know, this happens first, then that happens, you know, and I think, I think what you do a really nice job and kind of saying, if we think it's really complex, shouldn't we study it and analyze it in ways that capture that complexity? And maybe we are murdering to dissect these phenomena. I think that's a great way to put it, Jeff. That's, um, that's exactly, that's exactly what we were thinking. Maybe not so eloquently, but that's exactly what we were thinking. <laughs> so. Yeah, and but 
you know, there's a real, there's a real pragmatic challenge on how to make that happen. I mean, a lot of these constructs have been around for, you know, decades, over a century, and um, they've been studied very similar ways. I mean, particularly with regard to motivation, when you go back and you look at the history of motivation theory, I think the evolution of the construct suggests that they've changed a little bit with regard to, you know, the way that they get measured or how we think about individual differences. Certainly, we've moved from a kind of behaviorist approach to a more cognitive way of thinking about motivation. But the theory all along has certainly kind of pointed to this idea that these are complex phenomena, but the methodology and the analytic techniques really haven't followed. And it becomes very difficult to figure out, well, if you're not going to measure it using a kind of causal model, then you know how are you going to measure it and how are you going to study it? And that was a real challenge with writing this paper was, okay, well then what kinds of analytic techniques can we use and what kinds of research designs can we use that will allow us to study these things in ways that attest to their complexity and their sort of emergent properties. And just to kind of build off that a little bit, um, one of the other elements that I think was interesting for us when we started out on this path with respect to aligning the theoretical complexity and underlying assumptions with the modeling is that there's also a separately a place where many of our theories would suggest these networked and nested types of um, phenomena. So mm-hmm. what we would see are attempts um, in terms of the, the analytic approach that was relying on and starting to rely more on uh, kind of these nested hierarchical types of approaches while at the same time often not considering the dynamic processes that might be underlying how those phenomena were um, unfolding over time. Right. So, so for example, um, my background or where I came from was a complex systems perspective, but the majority of the theory that would draw on that was actually more of a bioecological type of approach or, or a nested type of approach. Mm-hmm. And while that's very helpful, it also has some limitations in thinking about dynamics and dynamic processes. So we, we just aim to kind of not necessarily align with a specific modeling approach or um, perspective within complex systems, but kind of broadly thinking about what is it, what are the nature of the properties that are underlying many of the theories that we wrestle with and that we live in and that we think the field generally lives in. And that's how we um, decided to really focus on the idea of complex, dynamic, and emergent phenomena. Right. And I think when I was thinking about complex systems prior to reading your work and some other work, I had a vague sense that it was, well, there's a lot of pieces and they all kind of interact and then somehow something happens. It's kind of emergent. I don't know. You can't really reduce it to its pieces. Well, that's kind of it. You do a really nice job in the article of talking about what complexity means, what dynamism means, what emergence means, and how these things happen. I think for the average educational psychologist, they might not know the difference between a linear interaction model and a more complex systems approach to analyzing data. And what comes to mind for me is I think a lot of educational psychologists think in a regression form, uh, you know, kind of framework, and they think about, okay, well, there's variables um, and variable-centered analysis. And then people got really enamored for a while about person-centered analysis because there were so many interactions that they wanted to model. I think what people failed to recognize was that person-centered models are, are based upon variables. They're still 
variable-centered models. They're still kind of linear interaction of space models. And what you're describing in complex systems is a, is a wholly different approach. It's a different way of trying to capture not just interactions between individual variables, but different kinds of feedback loops and different kinds of reciprocality that folks might not be really clear on. So if I'm right about all that, can you expand upon that and help our audience kind of understand how complex systems is different than what they might think of as an interaction approach from a regression point of view? Yeah, uh, absolutely. So a couple of things come to mind. First, you know, I was really trying to get at this in the figures in the article. So there's these kind of sparse figures and they're not labeled terribly well. And that's kind of by design, right? And so when you look at the article and you look at the figures, you can really see exactly what you're talking about with a kind of regression-based approach because we're trying to provide a kind of a visual gestalt for what it looks like to perhaps sort of move from thinking in terms of linear modeling and a regression-based approach or a structural equation modeling-based approach to the kind of networked thinking that Gwen was talking about there. And I think that's a kind of ontological shift that is extremely important for conducting complex systems research. There's a way where you kind of have to allow yourself to get out of the general linear model and to think a little bit differently about the underlying conceptual model that's driving your research and the kinds of research questions that you want to ask to get at these sort of phenomena. That's not to say that the general linear model isn't useful, you know, or that regressions aren't useful or they can't be used in innovative ways. But the point that we were trying to make in this figure and then in the kind of beginning part of the article is that there really is a kind of ontological shift in thinking that's required to be firmly rooted in CS research. And then just with regard to, you know, the question about sort of variable centered or person centered, you know, ways of going about research, I, I don't think I could agree more. I've always, I mean, we've had conversations about yeah. this, Gwen, but there's this idea that I think that person centered, you know, research is not quite person centered. And then what I see in the literature around person centered approaches is that, I mean, they do model interactions in a way that's interesting. And I've done some of them myself, but they're not any more replicable than any of the other techniques that come along with the general linear model in the sense that I may be able to find these kinds of profiles that show different interactions um, you know, between variables, but those profiles I don't see replicating in the way that a sort of component dominant approach to thinking about research might necessarily require, certainly not in the way that you might think about replication in a kind of RCT or randomized controlled trial. I mean, there's a sort of gold standard of research around, you know, replicating patterns of results where you make inferences from a sample to a population that just doesn't really hold when you're trying to think within a complex systems framework. And even if you use a kind of person-centered approach, it seems like the desire around those approaches is still to create a kind of replication of profiles or something that will sort of explain away some of the differences that we find between studies. And I, I don't know that it gets there. I think, and then there's latent transition approaches. And I think as those take hold, I think what you're gonna find is that the research is gonna ultimately point to the fact that these things are dynamic processes that are changing from context to context in ways that aren't entirely replicable because they're emergent, you know? Right, and, and I think that that for me is the biggest challenge to kind of communicate with students about in particular and um, who are really interested and excited about 
thinking about their phenomena in different ways and how to research their phenomena in different ways. Um, you know, we train our students in a stand, you know, we get a lot of regression types of approaches, MANOVA, multivariate models, you know, all these different approaches that really are resting on assumptions around the centrality of the variable. And for me, it's not even the focus on the variable that is as much of an issue as it is the focus on what it is that we're trying to understand. And with complex systems, we're trying to understand something about the behavior or pattern of an individual or groups of individuals as they unfold over time and within context. And in order to try to identify those patterns, which we we can see in many different places and we can try to track, we still have to collect data. So it's not like we're not collecting data. Uh, so, yeah. so in trying to think about what that means, you know, we're still measuring variables in many cases, or we might be tracking, in some cases we might be tracking trace data, or we might be tracking some other type of behavioral trace or uh, interdependence amongst individuals, but we still have to collect that data. And so it's difficult to not, and, and I don't think we want to suspend the idea of a variable because variables are still really important. Um, course, it's yeah. just thinking about the way we treat them and the way that we can focus more on the interdependence and what lives in the space between those variables, as opposed to being so tied to the specific behavior of a particular variable um, as the the major indicator of the phenomena that we're interested in and how it is related to other variables instead of how what exists amongst the variables actually is the piece that we are most interested in from a complex systems perspective. It's that interdependence and that transactional nature that gives rise to these predictable patterns of um, behavior in complex systems. So Gwen, that, that was really helpful. And I think um, what's important to communicate to listeners is that when people hear that you and, and John wrote about how interaction dominant models are important, um, they may think to themselves, oh, well, I do interaction research and a regression. That's not the kind of interaction that you're talking about. These kind of nested network interactions, these transactions are, are far more complex um, than can be captured with a general um, linear model or even with a multi-level model, et cetera. So Gwen, I think that, that was really helpful. Um, I think the piece that people might want to hear more about is, you know, what, what do complex systems theory approaches help us to predict? Like how, how can they be used to help us understand phenomena and then predict good outcomes and maybe even try to make those good outcomes happen? So this is where we've been struggling with the epistemology of complex systems. So when we first, like I mentioned in my one of my earlier responses, we started with sort of thinking about the epistemological and ontological assumptions of complex systems research. And we really wanted to focus on ontology for this piece because it seemed like that was where we were going to be able to make the most impact. But I think with regard to how do we utilize complex systems research to sort of like change practice or improve student learning or something like that. I think that's where we really need to struggle with the epistemology of what complex systems research means for the field. And so I think a lot of times what we're really interested in is maybe studying a sample, you know, that we've collected at random and then making an inference back to a population. And that's not really possible when we're um, in a complex systems framework. 
because of the way that complexity and dynamics emergence works, the idea that something would be replicable or that you could sample from a population, you can't really meet the sort of gold standard of research that I think that, that we've sort of set up for ourselves. And so we have to start to rethink what the epistemology of that looks like. And I think what we've kind of landed on is this idea that instead of maybe sampling from a population and then making an inference back, what we'd be really interested in doing with complex systems research is sort of engaging in a kind of theory testing that's based on interpretation of patterns that can work along a more like diagnostic kind of level. You know, um, I can give you a, a particular example. Uh, you know, within the area of learning analytics, we end up dealing with a lot of really intensive, complex data sets that are difficult to unpack. So providing people or the provision of analytics so that somebody can take a look at complex data and understand what the dynamics and the emergent processes are that are happening within that data. Let's say that I was to show an instructor a network diagram of, of how their students are interacting within a classroom, and they can maybe make some inferences about the sort of complex interactions that are happening within their classroom and how those complex interactions are changing um, along, along with instructional changes that they're making. You know, they may be able to make some, come to some kind of diagnostic conclusions about what's happening with their classroom uh, and make improvements there around student learning. But that has very little to do you know, with a kind of, you know, sort of controlled trial or something like that. Epistemologically, what we're doing is we're, we're taking complex data and we're making important decisions around it by making an inference back to theory. Yeah, I mean, and I think there are ways that, you know, we've talked about in terms of being able to identify discernible, repeatable patterns that might give you some idea about conditions under which you can optimize, um, student learning, or that might be particularly helpful. So I, mean, I don't know if optimize is exactly the right word, but I think about when you're looking at trying to identify spaces where behavior tends to live. So I'm talking about like attractors, right? So, or state spaces. So if we collect data that is um, intense data with many different time points or signals, and we model that, and we look to see if you think about all the possible potential ways that individuals might behave or might be motivated or what they might do, how they might engage with material, and we think about all the possible ways that those configurations might occur within yeah. a space, and we look to see, okay, well, where do people end up in classroom in, in terms of engagement? And can we identify conditions that might lead people to spend more time in a more desirable engagement state? So even though how they get there might be a little bit different, like one child or one student might be more inclined to live in a more positive, adaptive engagement state if they have different motivational supports or if their interest levels are different or maybe values are particularly salient for them or whatever the case may be, or they really like math. I mean, whatever it is that um, might lead them to end up in that particular adaptive state might be slightly different for someone else, right? This is the idea that we don't necessarily rely quite as extensively on three or four variables, but we try to understand a little bit more about the nature of the variables or the states that might underlie how people might end up in this particular adaptive engagement state. And we might want to look at, well, what are the environmental conditions that might support 
spending more time in that engagement state. So I think we can think about it too in terms of trying to identify discernible patterns and repeatable conditions that could lead people to spend more time in a space that should lead to or theoretically would lead to better learning outcomes or better psychological adjustment or whatever the phenomena is that we're interested in. And um, so I do think that there are spaces for trying to understand and use complex systems approaches to get at desired end games, as it were. Agreed. Agreed. I just, I guess I don't want to harp too much on randomized controlled trials or random sampling from populations or something like that. I guess just pragmatically speaking, you know, the kind of intensive data that's required to do complex systems research, whether it's time intensive or relational intensive, makes it really difficult to sort of take a CS approach and use it within the context of a component dominant or a kind of traditional approach that utilizes the general linear model. And I do think that when Gwen makes points about like repeatable patterns or repeatable conditions, that's exactly sort of what I'm thinking, right? So traditionally, we might study motivation or engagement as whether it's high or low, but really from a complex systems approach, maybe we would want to study it as a recurrent state. You know, how, how often or how frequently are we visiting a motivated state or an engaged state? And then what are the kinds of conditions that allows that kind of recurrent pattern to emerge? And that's not going to be the same every time. I think that's really helpful because, again, speaking as someone who um, doesn't know a lot about complex systems, I think before I started reading your work, I had this sense that, well, it kind of feels like at the end of the day, what they say is there's a lot of stuff happening and and then phenomena emerge. And I don't know how to get from the stuff to the phenomena. And I think what your article describes quite well is that you can find these repeatable patterns, these repeatable conditions that tend to lead to certain kinds of states that we may find optimal or we may find useful. Um, and that's that's its value. And John, I think you're right. It is kind of an epistemological shift in that we're not necessarily looking for cause in the way that we might think about cause in a randomized controlled trial, but rather we're thinking about, given all the complexities in this in this environment, in this context, what are the things that tend to lead to certain kinds of states or certain kinds of outcomes? What are the patterns? What are And then when we perturb the system, what happens? Do the patterns come back? Do they change? Um, and that's a different way of thinking about how to affect a system or how to you know act within a system. But I think it's just as useful, maybe differently useful, than what many researchers may be familiar with in terms of kind of quantitative research. And that's kind of what I mean, you know, that the classroom interaction example I was giving around classroom networks, that's what I was kind of driving at was, you know, if I'm a teacher and I recognize that my classroom is a complex system that has a desirable self-organized state, you know, is there a way where I can make a kind of inference back to like a complexity kind of thinking where I'm looking at the classroom interaction that I have and I'm wondering all right, is this, a, is this an optimal self-organized state? In what ways can I perturb the classroom environment to, you know, to improve interaction and information flow within the classroom? And I think that that's a very reasonable way of thinking about the pragmatics of complex mm-hmm. systems research in you know, typical educational environments. John and I have been working together on this for about five years now. And it's, you know, we've always talked about this not as replacing anything that we currently have in educational psychology, but really thinking about this as a complementary source of information where we can learn something different 
that might help provide a rounding out of our understanding of these phenomena and our and theory, and also provide some information about um, helping people to to think more deeply about the kind of environment, contextual constraints, and control parameters or conditions under which um, our theories might not hold for everyone, or are, we might see exceptions. And I think the perturbation to the system issue is something that is language we don't really see people use. People say intervention, and then they want to test it using a randomized controlled experiment, which has, certainly has its place. But that's a really difficult, you know, when you're thinking about the control, the environmental control required to be able to make strong claims about internal validity and causality, it's difficult to then understand how that might play out in a more naturalistic system. So um, absolutely. So I, I think that's a that's a nice way of putting it, right? That complex systems are complementary sources of information about what's going on. Um, and when you, know, what, when you were talking, it reminded me of a part of your article where you talked about how both quantitative and qualitative methods um, can play a role in thinking about complex systems and how to understand them. And I'm reminded of bad quantitative researches where you do a randomized control trial on the effects of retrieval practice. You find that it helps students in your sample. And then you tell every teacher in every classroom in the world to do retrieval practice all the time. Retrieval practice, that's it. And that's really bad quantitative research, but sometimes that's the message that gets sent out. Whereas in qualitative research, there's this understanding, we're going to give you thick description about what's going on and kind of all the processes that are happening in an environment and all the interactions so that whoever reads this, it's your job to kind of understand it and then decide how much or in what ways it applies in the context you happen to be in. It strikes me that complex systems research does much the same thing, kind of says, well, here's a system and here's how it's working and here's some of the patterns. And now you, reader, can decide whether this is useful for you, given all of the thick description that we've provided you about what's been going on. So it, it strikes me as a, a way of capturing complexity in a way that bad quantitative research sometimes overlooks. Absolutely. And so you've probably noticed that our article didn't necessarily focus a lot on qualitative methods. And it's because qualitative methodologists have done a very nice job in many ways capturing some of the complex processes underlying their phenomena through their use of rich description. I think we wanted to um, focus more on the quantitative approaches that would also allow for that description of patterns, which are, you know, traditionally trained or going through training programs right now that um, have a heavy emphasis on quantitative approaches and think about how we can use quantitative approaches to actually provide some of that rich description as well, or that analysis of patterns. And, you know, of course, we also use mixed methods to study complex systems as well. So I know for myself, I'm fairly methods agnostic when it comes to when it comes to what you should use. I don't know if there's a should in here in terms of complex systems approaches, but that there um, are many different ways that we can appropriately characterize our phenomena using these approaches. Hmm. So that's that's interesting to me because I um, <clears throat> I do think that your article is serving as a really important bridge for people that might not understand complex systems or understand their value. And so you've given examples about motivation that certainly resonate with me. Um, whenever I teach motivation in class, you know, we cover all these different types of motivation and different stimuli, and um, we talk about them individually. And then I kind of go, well, and they all play out all at once, and the students kind of all kind of fall out of their chair and go like, oh, how do we figure this out? 
and you know, John, you're talking about learning analytics and all the data you gather and learning analytics, and it can feel overwhelming to kind of know what to do. Um, but it feels like complex systems theory does allow us to, and complex systems uh, research methods do allow us to take into account that complexity, but then also have implications for educators assuming that they are indeed the professionals that they are, that they understand their contexts and they can read our work and go, okay, here's how I think it applies for me. And I think that's a really powerful message that I, I'm sure the vast, vast majority of educational psychologists agree with, but I don't know we always do such a good job of communicating. So that, that piece feels exciting to me in terms of what complex systems theory can position us to do. And you've mentioned, you know, motivation is certainly a complex phenomenon that we should probably model in more complex ways, engagement, social networks, learning analytics. Are, are there other phenomena in educational psychology that you look at and go like, gosh, I really wish we were looking at that from a complex systems point of view? Collaborative problem solving, um, instruction, when we think about like active instruction or um, a lot of what we talk about in terms of I think teacher beliefs and teacher expectations with respect to how that interacts with individual histories and components that students bring to classrooms, I think lend themselves really well to a complex systems approach. Um, a lot of the dyadic types of processes or small group processes that we think about in um, learning systems would lend themselves really well to complex systems approaches. Um, it's hard for me to think of, I mean, when, I ask, when you ask that question, I sort of go at it the other way. And I think, is there anything that I can think of in educational psychological research that doesn't play mm -hmm. out along the lines of like, mm -hmm. you know, complex dynamic and emergent sort of principles. And when I think about the question that way, I, I, I really have a hard time of, finding something that isn't inherently complex. I mean, something I guess that's the, a reductionist. Yeah. I guess there's, you know, I guess you might be able to think about static things. I don't know, class size or something. I, I don't know, but it's really hard to come no. up. It's really hard for me to come up with something that's, I don't think actually has a kind of very intense, interactive, interdependent kind of quality to it. Well, and it could be that at different levels. So at different sub systems, there could be some relatively simplistic system behavior, but if you're looking at what might potentially underlie some of that, or if you kind of, because systems are nested, right? And so if you get down into these, into these smaller subcomponents, or you move up into higher levels or more emergent structures of a system, it could be that at some level, there might be some relatively simple deterministic type of behavior. But if you think about what might give rise to that, like physiological systems or the interaction between the person and the environment, you, you may start then to think about perhaps complex systems approaches might be particularly helpful depending on the nature of any of these phenomena, depending on what grain size and what lens you're bringing to it or what element of that phenomena you're interested in. Just to jump in on that, I mean, these are also empirical questions, you know. So one of the things we bring up in the paper is the issue of ergodicity, right? So a lot of times implicit, we assume that our phenomena are stable over time, especially when we're doing cross-sectional research. And I don't think that there has been a ton of intensive studies of a lot of the dominant variables in educational psychology to see if they really do meet that ergodic assumption. Mm -hmm. You know, even things like 
you know, some of the research that we cite in this paper around things like self-concept, for example, that a lot of people would consider to be relatively stable and not changing a whole ton over time, you know, trait-like is what we might call it. When you study it intensively, meaning you have a lot of measures of self-concept and very close proximity to each other, you find that, you know, people's self-concept, even using traditional measures are rapidly changing, even maybe even throughout the course of the day. And so there's a way where I think there's some empirical questions around this too, you know, where you could systematically study a lot of the variables in educational psychology using intensive methods to see if they meet basic assumptions that mm -hmm. would allow them to be considered and not complex or yeah. stable or not dynamic, whatever you might call those things. Well, that, that's, that strikes me as an important point too, right? So <clears throat> there's a, a pragmatic uh, kind of approach to this, which is if we adopt kind of a multiple model framework, you know, you can ask the question, okay, if we model this as static, how, how does it work? What do we find? How useful is that model versus if we model it as more dynamic? You know, there's increased complexity that makes it harder to interpret and maybe harder to translate. But, you know, does that get us something important? You could compare models and kind of test those assumptions about complexity based upon a pragmatic criterion. You know, the only thing that strikes me as, as really static in education is uh, my intense dislike of MANOVA. <laughs> <laughs> it's useless. There's, it's useless. Um, that will never change. Other than that, uh, I think it's, it might be all complex. Yeah. But, you know, you yeah. bring up an important point, right? Because, like, the big omnibus test for the MANOVA is it's like the linear combinations of all the variables in your model, right? And I think maybe, like, how do you interpret that? Maybe that applies to complex systems in some ways. Like, it's complex they, systems can be just as frustrating. They can know? be scary and... It's important for us to really think deeply about our phenomena and our expectations of change and our expectations of um, how the phenomena might look different at different levels of analysis. And I mean, if there's not anything to be gained from a complex systems approach, if you have a relatively stable, static, predictable type of behavior and it doesn't look that different at different levels of analysis or different time scales, then probably don't need to invest the time, the energy, or the effort into a complex uh, systems uh, approach. Uh, uh, but um, I don't think we know that yet. I think we've made a lot of assumptions around time and interaction and emergence that we just haven't thoroughly investigated to be able to make that leap. So, Well, and as, as you say in the article, um, one reason why we might not know those answers is a because we haven't been doing a lot of this work but b we haven't gone through the effort to collect the kind of high volume data necessary to really ask these questions about dynamism so i thought your paper did a really nice job of talking about the different kinds of data that need to be collected time intensive relation intensive time and relation intensive um, what are um, some promising ways of collecting the data necessary to do the kind of analyses you're talking about to figure out whether these things are dynamic or not? I mean, the kinds of things that we're angling for right now are experience-based sampling, trying to utilize um, physiological sensors. I think those kinds of things, those two approaches in particular are very interesting to me. I know a lot of people have utilized things like, you know, diary studies, doing, you know, video recordings of classrooms, we cited a couple of papers where they're doing some really innovative things with, say, for example, using joysticks to do microgenetic coding of videos. Mm -hmm. um, 
I really, you know, obviously like the idea of combining qualitative observations with just about all of those forms of data. Right. I mean, it can be really difficult to gain access to this type of information. And and the thing that, you know, we run into a lot and we talk with our own students about a lot is kind of not ending up in what we call data no man's land, yeah. which is nine, where you might collect two weeks worth of nine or 10 types, which seem like a lot, but at the same time, aren't often enough to be able to use for some of these techniques that have higher data demands. And so it is getting back to having a very careful research design that is aligned really well with your expectations around the nature of change of your phenomena. And also at the same time, maintaining that pragmatic lens of, well, do I have access? How disruptive is this going to be? How can we collect data in a way that enables us to answer these types of questions and use these types of analyses? And at the same time, not have like 80% attrition because people are tired of participating yeah. in a study. So so I think trying to combine some of the behavioral types of data, like John was talking about with maybe some more of the subjective aspects and using devices to collect data, like device contingent type of sampling is starting to um, emerge as an interesting methodological approach where the device itself is hooked into some of your physiological symptoms and a physiological shift could trigger then some sort of subjective type of experiential response from the individual, right? So kind of those are really interesting methods that we're just starting to have the technological sophistication to be able to leverage. Mm -hmm. There's also utilizing things like trace data, log data, existing data, and even that, say, taking data out of the back end of a learning management system or something like that. And that puts a different set of demands on the field as well, because mm-hmm. then you're sort of required basic understanding of computer science, database management systems. I mean, it, it, it sort of like requires a, a sort a of team. deep understanding yeah. of data architecture and pulling together larger teams of researchers who have various areas of expertise who understand how to extract that data, how to clean it, how to code it. How to interpret it. How to interpret it, how to analyze it. Yeah. I mean, and the data no man's land example is terrific. It's something that we talk about a lot, but that we really like to be doing time intensive or relation intensive type studies. But the pragmatics of what that means is that you have to do very closely spaced observations over time, and that's difficult in classroom settings. And then the requirements for a time series analysis to meet, say, for example, stability assumptions require a lot more than, say, you know, nine or 10 observations. So, yeah, I think you're right in terms of, you know, in terms of method or data collection, adopting complex systems approaches puts a really high demand on the kinds of data that we collect and how intensive it needs to be in order to start looking at the sort of dynamics of a system, for example. So you've identified a number of challenges Um, for the field in terms of data collection, in terms of interpretation. Uh, You also talk about in your article how the field of educational psychology probably needs to think and do things differently to adopt a complex systems approach in terms of how we prepare students and how we think about and fund research. I mean, what, what do we need to do? If educational psychology was going to make a concerted effort to embrace complex systems methods and analyses, et cetera. How how do we have to train students? How do we have to fund research? How do we have to get this stuff to the point where we can learn something from it in a systematic way? Well, let me start by saying that 
we struggle deeply with the hubris of that message, right? There's a way where we do definitely see these things as kind of complementary, and as you know, as the field evolves and as technology evolves and as the you know our our abilities to collect data evolve, we're going to be dealing with different kinds of data sets, and so I think in some ways we see complex systems as being you know a very useful and helpful kind of approach for the field, and then. You know, in terms of what I think we need to do, I think it really relies upon several sort of avenues. I think first has to do with working with graduate students. I think a lot of the, the curriculum that we've adopted within graduate student education is oriented towards more traditional forms of research methods. And so, you know, developing coursework and programs that focus on the kinds of methodologies and, and methods that we've been discussing is a really great place to start. Yeah, it's, you know, it's really interesting because there's been a number of symposia at yeah, AERA and APA and other places Sci-Fi. that, and SciPy, where we've seen, um, especially our emerging scholars and graduate students, postdoctoral associates and early career faculty that are really excited about wrestling with some of these ideas and thinking about how these fit in with what they already know and how that they can extend them. And I think one of the things we've talked about is some concern with respect to if individuals and our emerging scholars are grappling with some of these issues or even established scholars that that want to develop this approach are then run up against some of the expectations or the traditions in educational psychology that have a relatively narrow focus about what counts as rigor in scholarship that they're going to be caught in a difficult place. And so I, I think when we've talked about it, we've talked about, you know, graduate education is a really good start, but who's going to teach those courses? And then when people are going out and trying to apply these methods, how will they be received right. by the funders, by their tenure and promotion, by editorial boards that may not be familiar with this? And so I think one of the places that we need to go, and we've talked about this quite a bit, is actually to include some of these early career scholars in those places where they are serving as editorial board members and they're able to provide the voice of some of these emerging aspects or even having interdisciplinary teams of individuals help with uh, education or have that be built into having interdisciplinary work, perhaps even being built into tenure and promotion guidelines so that as the field begins to shift a little bit with not just complex systems approaches, but other types of approaches to research as well, and begins to broaden and have a more flexible interpretation of rigorous scholarship, that there are places where individuals can have outlets for that work and also at the same time receive training. So it's it's a difficult challenge that I think we're faced with right now, but certainly having these types of conversations supporting those types of symposia, inviting more established scholars to think about how they interpret this type of approach and what their expectations are. Those types of conversations are really important for beginning to shift to a more flexible approach. I want to make one last point that just kind of like to build on that is, you know, I 
I think that there are some structural barriers that need to be addressed with regard to sort of integrating complex systems research into the field. And I, I think a lot of that's kind of already happening. You know, there's been a lot of really great work done by other people in this space too. Yeah. And, you know, like there's kind of a proliferation of conference presentations and symposia and workshops handbooks, and all of those kinds of things. You know, right. Yeah. Handbooks, those kinds of things. Well, I think that's terrific, but you know, it's also, I don't know that necessarily what we're after is a kind of like paradigm shift or anything like that. I, I personally feel very strongly that, you know, thinking about complex systems research as a kind of new paradigm is kind of antithetical to complexity thinking in and of itself. And then maybe doesn't necessarily maintain fidelity to a very specific definition of what we mean by a sort of paradigm shift. So by addressing some structural barriers around what we consider to be rigor in the field or something like that, I think can allow complex systems research to be adopted as, a, as, a, as one approach among, amongst many that can be useful for studying, you know, teaching and learning and other kinds of things that are important to educational contexts. So that's really helpful. And I appreciate both of you kind of reemphasizing that complex systems theory really does fit within a, a, a larger perspective on research, perspective on better understanding learning and how it is complementary and how it does add. It's not, we're not proposing a revolution here so much as we are proposing a, um, an additional way of thinking, an additional way of, of examining uh, learning phenomena. So that's, that's really helpful. Uh, I am I am interested and, and curious. So, what are you excited about in your own research involving complexity theory and, and complex systems? Everything. <laughs> no, um, we yeah. So we we've been applying these ideas to our own space in terms of a few different areas. So, uh, right now we are actually working on a handbook chapter for the new handbook of Ed Psych, um, thinking about dynamic systems approaches or complex systems approaches in ed psych with respect in particular to how we think about culture and context. So that's kind of a fun project for us right now. Empirically, we've been looking at networks and dynamics within classrooming systems of engagement. So thinking about how engagement may actually look different at different levels of analysis, for example, in the group at the individual level and even um, within the individual, whether we have sort of more, well, not stable, but if there can be identifiable differences within really momentary types of engagement um, experiences, and then maybe uh, more subjective, longer time scales. So thinking about engagement and ontologically distinct levels of analysis and measurement there. We also have been looking at this from um, there's a field called the science of team science that looks at collaborative research processes that we've both been working in for a little while using social network approaches to understanding um, collaborative research teams. And then also in some of the work I've been doing, I've been looking at that with respect to teacher systems in classroom and schools. Um, sure. Yeah, there's a, there's been a lot that we've been doing. We looked at it from mobility perspectives as well. Yeah. We developed a measure of collaborative engagement that sort of raises the level of, in, of study engagement to the group level, and mm -hmm. we're hoping to get that paper out pretty soon. Been drafting a paper on the epistemology of complex systems that is sort of coming together. Hopefully, that will see the light of day. It's been a little bit of a challenge. It, it has to do with some of the things that I was talking about with regard to you know making inferences back to theory instead of back to a population and 
And some of the some of the spaces that I think are have been a lot of fun for us in our work has also been and just really thinking about the methodological aspects and of this type of work. So sure. beyond the substantive areas of research, really trying to identify ways that we can translate some of these approaches that have oftentimes come from different disciplines and think about what this might look like with respect to and how we might actually take complex systems approaches, which, what do we measure? How do we measure it? How often do we measure it? How do we analyze it? So just the methods themselves um, have been a focus of our work as well, which is a lot of fun to play with. Yeah, probably too much. <laughs> well, that's, that's a good problem to have. I mean, those, those all sound like really exciting projects, so I'm eager to see them out in the wild and, and ready for people to review and, and learn from. So much like this article, um, which is a really helpful introduction to uh, complex systems theory and the methods and analytic techniques that can be used to understand learning phenomena from that perspective. So Gwen and John, again, thank you so much for taking some time to talk to me today about your article. It is truly fascinating work that, um, as I said, I didn't know a lot about. I'm grateful and pleased to know more about it. And I hope others find it just as interesting as I did. But again, I'm going to point them towards your article, an educational psychologist in 2018 entitled Complex Systems Research in Educational Psychology, Aligning Theory and Method. It's, it's a wonderful introduction and uh, really, I think, will push the field forward. So thank you again for all of your work. Thank you so much for having us, Jeff. We really appreciate the opportunity to speak with you. Yeah, thanks, Jeff. Thanks, Jeff.